0: Somewhat inevitably, the shadow of Afghanistan hangs over today's podcast, but so too, to a lesser extent, does the 1991 August coup. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. But now, on with today's programme. So, let me start by talking a bit about how the Russians perceive what's going on in Afghanistan. And particularly the implications of the Taliban's takeover. Look, as, of course, the habitual, even professional pundits whose shtick is to try and find some out-of-context quote from a particularly toxic or outspoken Russian talking head in order to kind of prove that, ah, Putin is smiling after anything even mildly negative for the West. Well, it's not all about Washington, And although, yes, of course, there are going to be many in Russia who have and are continuing to enjoy the discomfiture of the self-proclaimed last superpower, finding itself unable, after all, to accomplish what the Soviet Union had also failed to do. Look, that's inevitable. There's going to be a certain amount of schadenfreude. But more than that, there's actually concern, because actually if you look particularly at what's going on Russian television, Russian media, um, actually there's quite a sober assessment of the current situation and a cautious one about what the Taliban means. Because after all, this is in Russia's strategic neighbourhood. I mean One of the areas whereby they are actually really quite with the Americans, is precisely this sense that once again, the United States comes in, messes up a situation, and then just simply disappears off to its side of the world, leaving us to deal with the long-term consequences. And really, this revolves above all around what one could, depressingly not so tongue-in-cheek, describe as Afghanistan's traditional three exports, terror, refugees and opium. First of all terror now there is a big concern that despite what the what the Taliban says now and of course they're going to be saying the right things right now precisely because they want to give outside powers no reason or excuse to stop them from taking the country. Anyway despite what Taliban says you know there is a real fear that either they or a variety of other jihadist groups that are operating under their umbrella will begin to use Afghanistan as a base and above all mobilise the example of the great Satan America being humbled by the Muslim people of Afghanistan as a, a call to arms. First of all, yes, this is about Central Asia and I'll come to that in a moment. But it's also about a direct challenge to Russia. There is a fear that jihadism will spread from Afghanistan into Central Asia, and then along through the, the arteries and the veins of human movement, which particularly are about all the uh, temporary and migrant labourers on who the Russian economy, frankly, still depends. And that sense that these are people who it's very hard for the Russian authorities to control. I mean, in 2017, the St. Petersburg metro bombings, that F-15 dead, ended up being blamed, well, no, ended up being the responsibility of a Russian ethnic Uzbek who was actually born in Kyrgyzstan and was radicalised and joined, well, joined is perhaps not not quite the right word, but was a follower of Al-Qaeda. And generally speaking, what we've seen is a grudging admission from, above all, the Federal Security Service, the FSB, that actually migrant labourers and... Others who are particularly as part of Central Asian communities are actually very, very difficult for them to police. Up to now, after all, or until up to recently, the FSB has above all been focused on the primary threat, which came is from the North Caucasus, Chechens, Dagustanis, Ingushetians, and the like. And there, actually, the FSB, frankly, has built up a considerable level of capability. It has people who know the various groups. It has a whole network of informants. It knows which mobile phones to tap. It knows which people to be watching. And it also has a, a pretty substantial body of support within the communities themselves now, when it comes to the Central Asians now it's not that actually I want to in any way suggest that there's sort of some great big reservoir of jihadism, quite the opposite actually. but on the other hand, you, know, you have, for example, often you have migrant labour gangs who are recruited in the same village, township, or region and therefore basically know each other at one or second remove, you know, everyone is someone's second cousin. That makes it very difficult to actually place, even if you have um, a a sort of an agent who looks the part, who speaks the language perfectly and so forth, this person can't claim suddenly to be your long-lost third cousin. Likewise, these people don't tend to, for example, use cell phones, the way we we tend to do. Often you actually have, you know, a single phone that is collective property and, and managed by a whole bunch of people. You have individuals who clearly, you know, in some cases, are basically housed in, for want of a better word, barracks, cheap hostel accommodation, bust into work together, work together on whatever housing project or farming or whatever else, and then at the end of the working day, bust back. Again, this is not a sort of group which is easy to identify one particular individual, get to meet them, get to turn them into an informant. So for all these actual reasons, this is still a community that is very hard for the Russians to police. And therefore, they're really concerned about the terror dimension. Secondly, refugees, but there's at least 100,000 Afghans, many of them uh, there illegally, already in the Russian Federation, not a huge number in the grand scheme of things, but there is a concern that, there, that this, this, this could change. And again, that we'll have a, a knock-on effect of people flowing into Central Asia and then from there trying to move into Russia. Um, there was interesting, I'm just a little sort of sideline, there was actually a, a whole police unit, 18 officers, 18 Afghan police officers who were in Russia and uh, being trained to be dog handlers who to a man have actually said, actually we'd rather stay if that's all right. So it'll be interesting to see you know, what else happens in that direction. And then of course opium. I mean this is a really serious problem for Russia. I mean it's a serious problem for everyone, uh, and particularly now that roughly speaking, a third of all Afghan opium now goes through the so called northern routes, a lot of it through Russia. But it is a real problem for Russia itself. At the end of twenty nineteen, for example, Alexei Ragov, who is the head deputy head, sorry, of the Foreign Ministry's Department for Emerging Challenges, i.e. threats, said The Afghan drug threat is one of the worst problems for Russian national security and we've seen this to an extent also uh, reflected in the new national security strategy and so forth. Russia has something like four to six million drug addicts and I would stress that we're talking about addicts not just users. The, The user figure is much higher and it has a very high drug related mortality rate. It's currently well I say currently, really these figures are at the end of uh, 2019. COVID meant that 2020 data is still so so weird, shall we say. Anyway, end of 2019, about 102 for every million population. Now, to give that comparison, 2019 was also a depressing record figure for England and Wales, and their mortality rate was half Russia's. So, Given that the Russian figure is almost certainly an underestimate, as with so many of these, this data, um, actually Russians tend to underball the figures that they rec- pass on to Moscow. It's not that the Kremlin is concealing this. It's actually that people don't want to give the bad news to, to Moscow. So you know, th- this is a serious issue. Heroin is, after all, the most serious hard drug used in Russia today. And the, the risk is that Taliban, having initially claimed that obviously they are going to resist it, given that to, to a large extent they are still in cahoots with drug lords and so forth within their own country, given that they will need to be raising funds, particularly if America continues to basically block off access to, to assets, and given that, frankly, why should they care if drugs flow to Russia and beyond? So there is a serious concern that, that this will, will continue to be an issue. And, of course, as I said, Central Asia is going to be the the battlefield for, for many of these problems. And it's an area that is not just matters to Russia because it's on Russia's borders. It's also an area that matters to Moscow because it has essentially established itself as the regional security guarantor. And therefore, there is a lot of credibility, of prestige, the very notion of Russia precisely as the dominant regional superpower of Eurasia is therefore at stake. And we've seen this. Um, they, they, they are uh, sort of activating and building up their forces in Tajikistan in the 201st base. They have recently um, sort of launched some exercises, which are both an attempt to make sure that local forces are up to scratch, but also demonstrative, just to remind the Taliban that they have forces there. But at the same time, they're obviously talking to the Taliban. And of course they're going to talk to the Taliban. Like it or not, and it may well be not, they are at the moment the dominant power in Afghanistan. We'll have to wait and see what happens. Will they actually be able to assert their control beyond the cities? That's always been the challenge. I mean, Frankly, it was the challenge of the Soviets and their allies back in, d- during their particular nasty war. The fact of the matter is that the Russians have to deal with Afghanistan as it is. This is not, as some particularly bad hot takes have been suggesting, Russia betting on the Taliban. It's not that they have any particular sympathy, intellectual or ideological. Remember, the Taliban is actually a banned terrorist organisation inside Russia. It's just that Taliban is who is there. And let's be honest, the Americans, after all, had made their deal with the Taliban. So there's no point in getting sanctimonious about the Russians making talks. Indeed, if anything, actually, there is an interesting, and I would say very much a fringe, but nonetheless present perspective from some, particularly on the more sort of, nationalist end of Russian opinion. People like uh, Franz Klinsevich, the sort of former uh, Politician who is also the head of the Union of Afghan War Veterans, which has a clear resonance, who actually think that it's the United States that is behind the Taliban. That given that the roots of the Taliban are in the Mujahideen who fought against the Soviets and were backed by the Americans, they have created this rather tenuous notion that, in fact, Taliban is, 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 is a, a, co- a construct of the CIA. Now, again, I don't, really don't want to overplay that. This is not in any way mainstream view. But nonetheless, it, it emphasises that we shouldn't think that, that the Russians are close to and delighted by the Taliban. Instead, well, this is a, a mess that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Mead, is having to deal with. And it's interesting that, that they are very much in charge there has been this steady diminution in the power of the the foreign ministry and and its diplomats really since 2014. And so many of the the key theatres of current conflict are now actually the responsibility of other agencies. Basically, Syria is a a Ministry of Defence territory. If anything, it's Rosneft, the oil company that is really shaping policy towards Venezuela, for example. and, And there's other patterns elsewhere. Security Council Secretary Patrushev being still a key figure in shaping Balkan policy. And in all of these cases, what happens is really the foreign ministry just has to take, if not direct orders, but basically take its lead from these others and, well, clear up the mess, really. Not so in Afghanistan. Now, in part, this is because it's not really an area that anyone else wants to be responsible for. Secondly, it's because this is not an area... I mean, for example, there is no military deployment or whatever, so why would, why would the defence ministry want, want to be there? But it also reflects actual real skills and talents within the foreign ministry. People such as the uh, presidential representative there, Kabulov, um, who, who really does have a very strong reputation. Um, In part, I suppose, shaped by his name. But anyway, a a strong reputation as being a very experienced and capable Afghan hand. Now, the reason why I stress this is because it matters which agency has notional charge. Yes, of course, big policy is going to be decided by the Kremlin. It's going to be decided by Putin and those close to him. But nonetheless, the, the range of options that are presented to them, the way the risks and the benefits are framed, all of that will very much shape how the Kremlin makes its decisions. And on all the issues that the Kremlin isn't able or willing or bothered to actually decide, well, that is in the hands of precisely the the bureaucrats, the officials, the, the policy entrepreneurs in question. So when the diplomats are in charge... First of all, we obviously tend to get much more of an emphasis on talk rather than action. So, you know, it would be more about negotiations rather than do we need to assassinate someone. Secondly, in this context, because policy is handled through departments, in this case it's the second Asian department of the foreign ministry, it will be seen in a much more regional perspective. So instead of it just being about Afghanistan, it will be about Afghanistan as a piece in the particular jigsaw, which will include Pakistan, it will include Central Asia and so forth. So what we're probably going to see is, again, an attempt to try and frame this in much more multinational terms. And it's quite interesting. From the first, the Russians have been making clear that, for example, they're not going to be officially recognising the Taliban as the Afghan government themselves. They will want to be doing it in the context of an international um, decision. So there is is a degree of multilateralism that we don't tend to see when other agencies get involved. Which again is actually, I would suggest, quite an encouraging venture. We shall have to see. What though ultimately does Moscow want from this? Well, more than anything else, it desperately wants Afghanistan to be as least, least a problem for it as possible. It really is, in my opinion, that negative. Again, it is not that they encouraged Afghanistan because they wanted to humble America. Sorry, they, they encouraged the Taliban because they wanted to humble America or similar. No, actually, in many ways, they were relatively comfortable at this. You know, in recent years with the Western presence there, because precisely it actually did keep the lid on what otherwise would, could be a very volatile situation. Well, the lid is now well and truly off. So what they are looking for is someone else who can, if I can continue my, my rather threadbare metaphor, put the lid back on. They need someone with whom to deal. Someone who is, first of all, from their point of view, reasonable. Reasonable does not have to mean nice. It just simply means that they can actually make a deal with them. Secondly, someone who can be consistent. So in other words, that you can make a deal with them and you assume that not only will they stick to that deal, but they will still be in power in at least a reasonable amount of time. So again, one of their big concerns is we end up with civil war and a continuing revolving door at the gates of Kabul. And thirdly, someone who can deliver. In other words, the who can exert some degree of power over Afghanistan, they're not fools. They know full well that Kabul has never truly ruled this country. It may well be that they're going to find themselves dealing with two, three, four different interlocutors. A Northern Alliance, a Taliban in Kabul, perhaps the Panjshir Valley, that perennial thorn in the side of anyone who wants to control Afghanistan. But it doesn't matter from their point of view. The point is they want to be able to deal with people to be able to horse trade. They know that they're going to have to provide something. This may be international recognition, it may be economic support or whatever but they're going to expect something from it. And it's not like the way that the Chinese already seem to be looking at uh, the various economic opportunities. The big one to watch there, by the way, is lithium. Crucial element in batteries, and it's going to become more and more important. Chinese already seem to be positioning themselves, and Taliban is clearly opening this up for, uh, let's call it a bidding war. I'm not convinced that we're going to see the Russians are doing anything of the sort. As I say, they just want that lid back on. Anyway, what I want to do now is stop on this and instead, after the break, spin off from one of the key questions that people have been asking about Afghanistan, which is, you know, couldn't people have predicted what was going to happen? And wonder why we often are so bad at predicting things, but particularly when it comes to Russia. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows and remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Gagliotti or on Facebook Mark Gagliotti on Russia. Now back to the show. One of the already emerging debates about the debacle in Afghanistan, and it was a debacle, is the notion that, well, no one could have predicted that the Afghan forces would have evaporated so quickly and that the Taliban would move so quickly as to take Kabul. Well, okay, maybe it's true. Though I must admit that you know, there, there have been people who are saying, I mean, even if they weren't having exactly the same timeline, but certainly that the American official predictions of how long the regime would, would survive were rather overgenerous. This will obviously wait until the inevitable inquiry or the equally inevitable leaks to the New York Times or the Washington Post. But I'd be very, very surprised if there weren't some internal reports coming from within the intelligence community or the military or State Department or wherever else that actually did warn that this was was a serious possibility. So what really this is as often as anything else about is that actual expertise actual insight wasn't listened to or it never really was presented to the political leadership perhaps because they knew the political leadership wouldn't want to hear it or something else got in the way of a proper intelligence process and look as I said I honestly don't know what is the truth but it's, I just found it interesting because this came comes at the same time as we have the 30th anniversary of the August coup, the, the very short-lived and frankly increasingly farcical attempt by a bunch of hardliners to stop Gorbachev's reforms and in particular the creation or the signing of a new union treaty which would have entirely reshaped the, the fundamental basis of the Soviet Union turning it from being really a Moscow-based empire in all but name and turning it into a genuinely voluntary association of nations with a massive distribution of power from the centre to the constituent republics, which in the process would have led to a dramatic downsizing of the Red Army and also the inevitable end of the KGB. So perhaps it wasn't surprising that a bunch of plotters felt that they they had to act. Now, in the uh, sort of ensuing and and more more recent punditry about it, one of the particular sort of lines that has emerged is precisely that that no one had predicted this. Well, look, I was actually in Moscow until just a, a couple of days before the August coup. Something that still to this day bugs me. Um, I, you know, I hesitate to, to be too light-hearted about the fate of an entire nation, but there's a part of me that thinks, Russia, you owe me a coup. And the thing that struck me was when I was there, and look, I, I was just a sort of runny-nosed little um, PhD student, no one of any great importance or connections, but it, it seemed to be that everybody was talking about the possibility of a coup. Westerners in embassies and Russians on the streets. The interesting thing, though, was certainly within the Western community, there was a, a consensus that had emerged, which was that, yes, there could well be a coup, but that it would not until the middle of winter, which is, is reasonable. Um, the sense was that that's when the economic dislocations, particularly issues with uh, minor strikes leading to um, power cuts, which you know, power cuts mean a hell of a lot when you're in, in the middle of a Russian winter particularly given the degree to which houses are heated by centralised steam heating systems. If those close down, things get bad very, very quickly. So there, there was a sense that, yes, it could, it could happen. It may, some people actually said it probably would happen. But pretty much everyone thought it wouldn't be yet. And this meant that, of course, everyone was wrong-footed. The opposition in Russia was wrong-footed. I mean, Yeltsin was not arrested, which was one of the biggest mistakes of the coup plotters. But it wasn't because he, he was clever and, and he was sort of staying out of the way. It's just that they, they didn't think he was important enough at first. But also the West was totally wrong-footed. You know, there, there were these stories of precisely in intelligence agencies finding themselves having to watch CNN for the latest. And so this raises that question of why do we so often get caught out? What is it that that means that time and time again, whether it's Navalny being poisoned or Crimea being invaded, Russia catches us out? Well, a lot of this is the the usual reasons of generally speaking why actually a lot of intelligence and prediction frankly is much less of a science, much more of an art and frankly an abstract art at that. There is the question of our own cognitive biases that you know, there are some things that we don't want to believe. We we become invested, and often what we become invested in is past patterns. Um, and therefore, when 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 data comes along, we either ignore it or we reinterpret it in ways that actually suit us. Then there's just downright faulty information. I mean, one of the interesting things about Afghanistan, if I can sort of jump back and forth with that, is that there were actually clearly, in hindsight we now know, deals being struck between the Taliban and local political and military commanders who felt, not unreasonably, that the Americans had just completely abandoned them to their fate. And therefore, we didn't know what was going on. We didn't realise this was happening, especially because these conversations were taking place face-to-face, they were not taking place on cell phones or on internet chat all the kind of technological panoply, the chatter, that we have got quite good in the West at, at, at tracking. And there was a phenomenon of what we could call the shy Taliban. The reason I'm calling it that is one of the things that distorted attempts to predict the most recent British political elections was the so-called shy Tory who came from a community in which it was unfashionable to be supporting the Conservative Party, but nevertheless planned to do so this time round. But when they were asked by pollsters and so forth, they absolutely asserted that they weren't going to be voting Tory. Well, it's likewise in this case, we have people who ended up supporting the Taliban, whether it doesn't be out of self-interest or whether they, or they actually genuinely believed in it, but were not, until the Taliban came knocking, willing to say so. In Russia, it was different. Certainly if we, sorry, Soviet Union, it was different going back to the August coup. I mean, there actually we're talking about operational secrecy. It's the fact that because the coup plotters essentially had, the, the, amongst others, the, the upper leadership of the KGB, they were able to ensure that what they were planning to do was not going to leak. So one way or the other, it's often just simply a matter of not having the key information. Thirdly, it's because of the way that momentum can change facts on the ground faster often than we can actually revise our understandings and assumptions. And again, the the Taliban's advance is a a, a classic example of that. But so too, in, in, in a way, is the failure of the August coup. There was this uncertainty at first, and quite frankly, if the coup plotters had been more resolute, which, you know, let's be perfectly honest, means bloody handed, and also smarter in that first day, they probably would have succeeded. I mean, I don't think that their attempt to, to hold the Soviet Union in its old form would have worked, but nonetheless, at least they probably would have carried the day at that time. Instead, what happened is because things quickly looked Um, untenable. The the coup plotters didn't seem to know what they were doing. They didn't have the clear capacity and will to use violence on the streets. Momentum turned against them. Fascinating little data point was that on the first day of the coup, a record number of Soviet police officers called in sick. Why was that? Was there a sudden sort of um, outbreak of virus? No, it was a clearly... They didn't want to find themselves in a position in which they were going to have to club their next-door neighbour in the name of this emergency committee. But conversely, nor did they yet feel that they had uh, the courage or the reason to openly challenge the coup. So calling in sick gave them a day or two to wait and see. A lot of people were in that position, but when momentum swung against the coup, it swung fast And so, again, that's something that that caught us by surprise. And a final broad point is I would say that that experts, um, pundits, call them what you will. And here here I'm including myself. Please don't think that I'm putting myself up on some kind of Olympian pedestal. I'm as subject to the same flaws and shortcomings as anyone else. Well, just like generals who are forever accused of basically trying to fight the last war, in many ways, we are often trying to interpret the last crisis. We bring a whole set of assumptions about what happened before, and often, above all, because human being being what we are, what we got wrong the last time, and we overcompensate and try and apply it to this time. So you know, the, the, these are all, all general factors that, that, that get in the way. But as I said, it's, they're not necessarily about Russia specifically. But what is the case about Russia is that you have an interesting situation in which, on the one hand, you have a very, very opaque black box, as it's known, at the top of the system. Putin, yes, he will occasionally give presentations and uh, speeches and interviews, but basically speaking, we don't know for sure what he thinks. We don't know precisely what guidance he gets On the other hand, we still have a very, very vibrant sphere of public politics, whether it's in terms of people writing editorials... Pushing one particular angle or another, whether it's in terms of different parties and factions within even United Russia presenting certain aspects, whether it's in terms of all kinds of other political entrepreneurs, not just acting, but also pushing their own perspectives. This creates what really is still, even in the current authoritarian turn, what is still a very vibrant political environment. And it makes things Fascinating, it makes things exciting, it also makes things very difficult for us to interpret. And again, human beings being human beings, what we often find is people looking or believing rather that they found that one magic key the one key that somehow unlocks the black box and lets you know precisely what's going on. There have been so many of these magic keys, this one thing that if you understand this, You understand everything about Putin's Russia. You know, you want to understand Putin, well, you've got to read the Eurasianist thinkers like Lev Gumilyov or Alexander Dugin or the white Russian philosopher Ivan Ilyin or you have to look at his KGB past or whatever. You want to understand the Kremlin, well, it's all about the money or it's all about empire or it's all about a normative struggle with Western liberalism. Indeed what is driving Russian foreign policy oh it, it it's fear of nato it's hatred of america it's the venal interest of putin's people you know whatever it is all i mean many of these have considerable basis in their own rights some don't but the point is that rather than thinking that this sort of whole puzzle is a really is is a simple one essentially it's a jigsaw and that there is a picture there And it's a static picture and, you know, you just have to make sure that you've got all the the corners and things and you'll be able to work it out. Well, actually, it's complex. It's dynamic. It's a Rubik's Cube, not a jigsaw. And it's a pain-in-the-backside Rubik's Cube that, when you're not looking, swaps faces without you being aware of it. Now, why am I going on and haranguing you about this? Well, really, it's because I think both what we've seen in Afghanistan, and what we saw in 1991 during the August coup. Both, I think, are depressing but necessary reminders that I think when we're trying to predict what happens in any system, we need to be thinking, first of all, about a range of possibilities rather than the one thing that's going to happen. Some of those possibilities are more likely, some of them less, but let's just be aware of of the fan of different options. Secondly... It's worth thinking more directly about decision points. What are the particular moments which might well decide which way the country is going? So again, instead of thinking of it as as some kind of simple straight line, we can think of it as a decision tree. Putin may, for example, have been thoroughly determined to take Crimea. But if, let's say, the Ukrainian forces on the peninsula had very quickly and decisively turned to military action to try and push back the the little green men that were fanning out across the area, well, maybe we would have seen a rather different format, shall we say, emerging for quite what they would have done. Things change the situation on the ground. Plans are not always static. And I think this is especially true of domestic politics. This is actually still, I would suggest, a politically dynamic environment. There's a recent uh, RAND report on Russian grand strategy. I'm always a little bit uncomfortable about the notion of grand strategy. It makes things sound a little bit too sort of, deliberate and planned and such like. But nonetheless, it, it actually is, is, is a very sound report. And one of the key points it makes is, look, actually, the Russians essentially mean what they say they very clearly signal what their intentions are. They don't have secret plans and agendas, whether it's taking over the world or rebuilding the Soviet Union or, or anything like that. Well, that, that's, that's true enough, and that, that is actually, sort of, I think, the case in, in most uh, nations, most, most peoples or whatever. But nonetheless, within that, how that strategy is operationalized, what that actually means on the ground is often very, very much in play. And although, yes, this is an authoritarian regime, it is not a one-man dictatorship. There's a lot of different actors at work. They have, I would suggest, an unusually wide latitude, both to try and influence the boss, and uh, I, I'm going to be trying to talk about how the intelligence agencies do that in a coming podcast. But so, not only to try and influence the boss, but also to do their own thing on their own account. A still a huge amount of flexibility. There is also, I would suggest, no clear sense of exactly where things are going. That's a broad notion of where we'd like to be. But even take the example of the constitutional changes that took place last year. It was signalled at the beginning of the year, the constitutional changes, and to a lot of us it was, aha, this is proof that Putin is looking to, to remodel the system likely to be in a way that will allow him to leave the presidency but still have some powerful, whether it's father of the nation or whatever, role. What ensued was actually a considerable debate, both public and also behind closed doors within the inner elite. And what we ended up getting was a series of constitutional reforms that were actually really rather different, that the structures such as the State Council, which looked as if they were going to be beefed up to become a a new future birth for Putin, instead actually didn't really change dramatically. If anything, what happened was it cleared the way for Putin to stay in power for longer. Now, I don't think that this was because there was some kind of deliberate maskirovka, some deliberate act of obfuscation. I think it's a genuinely, there was a a single notion, there was a debate, and what came out of that debate was different. And it was different in a way that can actually have a very, very serious impact on the future development of, of late Putinism. So actually, this is a system in which the range of possibility is not just that we outsiders can try and predict which way do we think the Kremlin will go. It's also the Kremlin itself is playing this, is trying to work out, well, which are the different ways we can go that will broadly take us toward our long-term objective, which is essentially security, stability and prosperity. There is going to be a whole range of decision points as a result of that, one of which was precisely at the beginning and at the end point of that debate about constitutional change. And absolutely, there are a whole range of influences, not just within the country's elite, but also within the country as a whole. they, They do pay a lot of attention to what ordinary Russians are thinking. I mean, it doesn't mean to say that they're, they're going to provide what, they th- what the ordinary Russians want, but they at least know what they're doing. And there are influences outside the country. I mean, if one looks at the way that the brutal and thoroughly thuggish crackdown in Belarus has clearly influenced Moscow, in the sense of it's trying to avoid that kind of really massive open clash, these are all influences we have to bear in mind. But anyway, look, I have unfortunately indulged myself in getting onto my soapbox about how we need to think about Russia. As I say, I think next episode, I will try and get back to much more concrete topics, including the political impact of the intelligence services. But then again, as I've said, who actually knows what's going to happen between now and then? Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows, follow me on Twitter, at Mark Gagliotti, or Facebook, Mark Gagliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash In Moscow Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.